Well, according to the brochure about the four-day Tony Robbins retreat, the retreat called Unleash the Power Within, the brochure says at this four-day retreat, you can learn to unlock and unleash the forces that can break through any limit and create a true quality of life that you desire. The brochure also says you can surpass your own limitations, achieve your goals, and take control of your life. Well, Oprah has gone to the retreat, Andre Agassi, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, all of them have been transformed by the dynamic teachings of Tony Robbins. Also, his physical abilities, uh, his natural diet, his uh, physical routine, his walking on hot coals, which he does at the retreat, his mind over matter exercises, all these things you can reach in this four-day retreat. Just as he has reached the mountaintop, along with the hundreds of thousands of others that have, you can too, with the power to unleash with what is within. I don't know if you, we have any Tony Robbins fans here. I'm not trying to bash you today or anything like that. Maybe some of us have a little bit more snarky response, like myself, to Tony Robbins. But whether we care to admit it or not, there are people like Tony Robbins that we say they've arrived, they've done it. What do we have to do to follow them to unleash the power within? The mom blogger, right? Who does crafts, whose laundry is always done, who has a clean house, and at the same time on the blog just posted the perfect chicken parmesan recipe. Right? That's power within. The business person who has increased his assets while still decreasing his golf handicap, all while having the perfect lawn. Right? That's power within. People that have tap power that they can mold the world to their liking, right? That is what we want. Well, today, we're going to learn from one of the leading Christian experts about how to unleash the power. But I think we're going to find that the power is going to come from something unsuspecting. Well, should we go on this journey together? Let's do it, shall we? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. It's printed in your worship guide. Read it here. Please follow along as we look at God's word this morning. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, 
I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. Were you just visiting us? Welcome. We're glad you're with us this morning. We've been going through this epistle, this letter, 2 Corinthians, all this winter and here into the spring. And we're almost to the end. And you've come at a great time. I guess if you're going to hear one message in the series on 2 Corinthians, this would probably be it. Because here is the central message and theme of the book found in this passage, I believe, in verse 9 specifically. One of the major themes of the book is this. What is authentic ministry? What is authentic ministry? You see, Paul, who wrote this letter, planted this church in Corinth, southern Greece, And you see, this church is starting to be influenced by outside people. And the question is, what is the people that they should follow? What is the message they should follow? What is the authentic gospel? So one group that Paul calls the super apostles, he uses that in a sarcastic tone, has been influencing this church that he's planted in Corinth. These people have a very triumphant message. They talk about signs and wonders, healings and revelations. They talk about how they get money from people by their speaking gigs. And they downplay Paul. They see Paul and his companions as weak, as fools. People that have to suffer hardships. People that don't take money from their speaking gigs. They don't have this triumphant personality like these super apostles do. So now Paul, at the end of this letter, is trying hard to get the attention of these people that are starting to be swayed in the church. And what he does to get their attention is to play the game that the super apostles play, this triumphant message, this boasting, this bragging. He does this to be able to maybe shake them out of what they've been hearing. And he is going to make this powerful plea here, kind of the summit of his plea is right here found in these passages by making a very powerful and personal plea of things he has done and seen in his own life. 
I wonder if any of us are influenced by different messages. And you wonder, what message should I listen to to be able to have the power from within be able to keep me going in this life? Maybe you go to a conference and you see the people that have arrived. And you wonder, what have they done so I can get there? Maybe you're at a mom's group and you see a mom that just does an amazing job parenting or seems like they have their life together. What do I have to do to be like this person? Maybe it's you're at school age and you've seen the award ceremonies the upperclassmen get and you wonder, what is it going to take for me to get to that place? How did they get there? Maybe some of you are on the other side. You don't even try anymore. You live in hardship. And you think there is no power, there is nothing that I can access to get me out of this funk. There's nothing I can do to help me in my current situation. I'll just admit, coming to church in this Christianity thing, for many of us, can seem incredibly frustrating. It can seem like an incredibly frustrating proposition. Right? Maybe you guys have played this out already in your head. Oh, he's going to tell me that the church is the answer, right? You've already played it out. He's going to propagate his message that that is the answer. And you come to church, and you see these people that raise their hands, talk about revelations, talk about how pious they are, talk about how they've found Jesus or whatever it might be, and you go, I am never going to get there. I don't have these ecstatic experiences. I don't have these revelations. I don't have this piousness. I can't get there. Some would say, well, I've just been dealt a bad hand. God has passed me by. Here's the thing. Paul gives us a picture of power. Different than what the world uses. Now I tell you, the idea of the world's power is so deceptive. That even in the church, we can use the world's power to think that is what we need to make it. Even in the church. That was Paul is trying to do. To shake these people in the church to see where true power comes from. So this is what he does. In the first six verses... He boasts. He plays the game that the super apostles play. Earlier, we saw that he confronted their resume, that they were Hebrews, Israelites, sons of Abraham. And Paul said, well, I am too. And he says, that is not what really matters. 
Now here in this passage, he confronts what they say are their visions and revelations, things that they see and hear supernaturally that gives them credibility in their ministry. And so Paul says, okay, you want to play that game? You want to boast in that stuff? I can boast in that stuff. So he tells us a story. A story of a man who 14 years ago, he says, was caught up into the third heaven. Or you think the first heaven is our atmosphere, the second heaven being the stars. The third heaven is paradise, God being in the presence of God. And Paul is saying this person went up into this place and heard things that can't even be spoken of. They are so great. Well, as we read on, we start to realize this person, this man that Paul is talking about, is actually himself. He's referring to himself in the third person. We see in verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. So Paul is saying this is what happened to him. So why does he use the third person? I think it's a rhetorical device to separate himself. So he is not emphasized. He's saying, I could boast in this. I could brag about this, but I will not. You see that Paul says there's a different criteria that I should be judged on. You see at the end of verse 6, he says... But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul saying, let my preaching, let my teaching, let my earthly life, what I show to you and what I give to you and how I live with you, let that be the criteria. I love what Kent Hughes a pastor says about this passage. Paul in this passage ensured that the authority in the church would not be based on ecstatic experience, but on the actions and words of its leaders. Hear that again. Paul ensured that the authority of the church would not be based on ecstatic experience, but on the actions and words of its leaders. Aren't you so glad that the church in the 21st century has moved away from signs and wonders to authenticate our ministry? That no one puts himself on TV and makes triumphant claims, shows off their money, talks about their ecstatic experiences, so they can build credibility to their ministry and their message. I'm sure all of us are smarter than that here, right? We scoff at this, right? When you go to the P we're in the PCA, right? We're heady, we're better than that, right? Surely we don't follow worldly power to make sure that we think that the message is really true. Who sells the most books? Who has political power? 
Who can get change quickly? Who has enough personal charisma? That's not what we judge authentic ministry on, is it? And then we attach ourselves to those that are able to wield power. And we say, if I follow this person or that person, I will get what I want. Then I can master my world. It's so sad that many times the Christian message has become about winning. Unleashing the power to control our environments around us. And what happens is we cloud the gospel. We lose Christ. Instead, we just use the name of Christianity to get what we want instead of actually relying on the source of where it comes from. I'm glad I'm not clouded by that. This week, I got to stay at the Edgewater in Madison for the first time in my life. If you don't know much about the Edgewater, it's probably the nicest hotel in Madison. And I grew up in Madison always wanting to stay at the Edgewater, and I never got to. But now I got to for three nights. And it was for a church planting retreat, right? Get that. By this organization from the East Coast that had come into Madison to to run this retreat, and listen, I'm a church planter, right? This is like my, my thing. And I'm seeing, right, the people that have arrived. We're at the edge water. And this guy that leads this organization, he's planted tons of churches in the, some of the hardest places in the United States and around the world. And here I am, drinking a cocktail on the top of the Edgewater with all these church planters throughout the nation in the world, looking out on Lake Mendota and saying, man, they have got it right. This is what I need to do. Surely we are not blinded by signs of power that come through outward strength. Well, here's what Paul does. He transitions us to his own personal struggles. He goes from the top of being in the presence of God to the low. And Paul admits, verse 7, So to keep me from being coming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he just talked about, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Paul saying, I'm not immune to this. I'm not immune to the ways of the super apostles. By their pride and their conceit, this could happen to me. But what happens is, he talks about this thorn that is in his flesh. He says, instead of just building my ministry on what has happened to me, this elevated place of the revelations, right? He could have. He could have created a great ministry about talking about all these things he saw in heaven. He could have sold t-shirts, right? He could have had a website. He could have had seminars 
of talking about all those things, but he doesn't. He doesn't reveal what happened in that place. Instead, what he reveals is this thorn in his flesh. It's an image of something painful. There's lots of speculation about what this thorn could be. Again, earlier in the passage, he talks about all these hard things that happened to him, being beaten by rods, 40 lashes, three shipwrecks. He doesn't talk about this being taken away, but he wants this thorn to be taken away. Obviously, it's bad. Of course, there's tons of speculation about it. Maybe it was persecution by the super apostles. That's the thorn in the side. Maybe it's eye disease, as he mentions in Galatians. There's been so much ink spread about this in church history, about what it could be. I am not going to solve it right now. I think the vagueness is actually good. So that none of us can attach maybe a specific issue, say, well, it's the same issue as Paul. Or that we don't emphasize specifically Paul. But we can all kind of put ourselves in that situation as he points out in verse 10. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. All of those could be considered thorns in the flesh. We could put ourselves in those shoes of Paul. Here Paul is echoing the suffering of Job. You see that a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. If we've read Job, we realize that God has the power over all things, meaning we use the word sovereignty. There is not some equal power between God and Satan that they're warring against each other that they're equal in power. No, God is even over Satan. And the power that Satan has is only allowed him by God. God has allowed Satan to do this in Paul's life. And God is showing that even I will use this brokenness of the world, Paul, to refine you, to mold you. God knew this would be placed upon him. And even though that Paul pleads with God three times, it does not get taken away so God's glory can be shown. Again, this pleading, it echoes Jesus in Gethsemane when he pleads with his Father, Father, take this cup from me. But the cross still comes. And then we get to verse 9. I sometimes feel with this passage, I could just read it and just be done and just drop the mic. It's so good. Here is what the summit, I think, of this whole book is in verse 9. You might have it in red letters if you have a red letter Bible. The Lord says this, Jesus says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul is showing and saying 
in my weakness, Christ's power is shown. This gives a much fuller meaning of grace. One of the times when we think about grace, we think about it being unmerited favor. Instead, grace is actually being equated to power. Grace is the ongoing strength of God as we face struggles in this world. I love this. Sorry, I'm going a lot in the text here. Just look with me in the text. It says, um, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly my weakness of the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is language of the Old Testament of the tabernacle. When God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle, that he came and dwelt upon them and rested upon them as they were in the wilderness, that he was with them, that his grace was sufficient as they were wandering. That is the same language. And God is saying, my grace rests upon you, tabernacling with you. God dwells with his people. Paul is now boasting. You know, the super apostles, they're talking about boasting and bragging. You want to boast in something? This is what I'll boast in. I will boast in my weakness. He boasts in that weakness because in it, he's united with Christ. In Christ's death and life. And now that is reproduced in his own life. And it can be reproduced in our own. God's power is shown in the weakness of Christ. In the crucifixion, we see our sins are taken and God has the victory. In the same way, the thorn in Paul, it crucifies his pride. It gets rid of his self-sufficiency to see his need for Christ. A friend was telling me about his daughter this week that was just graduating. They were talking about how they were dealing with a lot of issues with his daughter, with self-righteousness, and other issues in her life. And this is what my friend said to me. I'm lamenting as a father that I taught my daughter simply to be self-sufficient. Hear that. I'm lamenting that I taught my daughter self-sufficiency. The Christian life is about reliance. This is the trap that we fall in. We think it's about signs or quick fixes or emotional experiences that we forget that the Christian life is God-sustaining grace in our lives. I was reading, I've been reading a lot about this text. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And I feel like I've, I've meditated on it quite a bit. 
but I was reading a theologian that was making some comments in this text, and it blew me away. I never saw this. I wish I was smart enough to see this. This is what Paul Barnett says. Paul, in verses 1 through 6, has given us a story of a revelation without giving us a revelation. In verses 7 through 10, he's given us a story about a healing without giving us a healing. We want signs. We want miracles. We want it to get better. But instead, Paul gives us weakness. He gives us no answers, we would say, by God. He gives us instead a crucified Christ so that a reliance would not be upon ourselves, but instead it would be upon God himself. How easily, if God gave us quick answers, we would think it was on ourselves, wouldn't we? We would forget. There is power that comes through Christ. Martin Luther King Jr., in his sermon, Strength to Love, said this. To our most bitter opponents, we say this. We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering for our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we should still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour, and beat us, and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be you assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, and not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. That is power in weakness. That is power in Christ. Oh, church! We will not win by having the right person as the President of the United States. We will not win by having more money or a grander show. We will win by relying upon the one that died upon the cross for us. So that what? In our own suffering in your own hardship, in your own thorns, it would turn your bitterness in those situations instead to reliance. It's so sad that we think that we can get out of our situations by looking to others, by looking at their strategies, and when we do that, we deny the process of God working his power upon our lives so that we would be sanctified. Guess what the talk was 
this week for three days. It was on power. So here I was with the people that have arrived in church planting. And you know what stories I heard from these leaders in church planting that plant in hard places? Guys that pastor churches that are 30 people. 30 people for years and have been faithful in ministry continuing to share the gospel when their church doesn't grow and the pain they've experienced over COVID and their life. The head of this organization that talked about the pain that he experienced planning a church in, in New Haven, Connecticut next to Yale University. And when he was on his knees Begging God, God, you do nothing. What is going on? A man gave him three and a half million dollars to plant churches throughout all of Connecticut. And he, what, what did he do then? Oh, it was because I was winsome. I got the money. Because I was amazing. No, instead he said, it's because Jesus Christ. I am weak, but he is strong. I feel like I need to get even more personal because Paul is personal here, so I will be personal. My daughter graduates this week, Ellie, and she is amazing. I have an amazing daughter. And many of you people in the church, they say that, you have an amazing daughter. What did you do? You and Aaron are amazing. You obviously did something right. You're amazing parents. Just, yes, absolutely. Let us <laughs> boast. You can boast all the more. I could boast in this. I don't think I've even told this story to Aaron. We did not expect Ellie in our lives, she was a surprise. We were living on a property. I was working three jobs, going to seminary. It was hard, super hard. I brought Ellie home. Aaron was taking a rest, and it was my first time, just Ellie and I. And I was strolling around this property that we lived. And I remember I was just overwhelmed with this. I can't do this. Lord, I, I can't do this. This is too much. And I remember I was on my knees and I was just crying. I can't, I can't do this. In my weakness. The power of Christ. My grace is sufficient for you. To God be the glory for his work upon my daughter. It's not us. It's him. 
when Jesus was upon the cross. Those that scoffed at him and did not believe in him, they said this, it's in Mark 15. He saved others, but he is powerless to save himself. You see, the world has a perception of power. Here's the power. The one that became weak for us. That in his weakness, we might have life and have it abundantly. You want true power? Rely upon him. Be weak. Say, I cannot do it. I need Christ. Christ.